Welcome to the Waterways World Podcast, brought to you in association with ABC Leisure Group, operators of higher fleets and marinas around the UK. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World Podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor of the magazine. And in this episode, I'm joined by award-winning writer and performer, Julian Dutton. Julian has written a host of TV and radio shows over the years, though he's perhaps best known as the co-creator and co-star of The Big Impression with Alistair McGowan, Pompadour with Matt Lucas, and the children's sitcom series Scoop. But he also writes books, and his latest, Water Gypsies, A History of Life on Rivers and Canals, explores the long tradition of living afloat in this country from ancient times through to today. During our chat, Julian describes how growing up on a houseboat at Chelsea in the 1960s inspired the book and the many fascinating things he uncovered during his research. So, let's take a listen. You're known primarily as a comedy writer and performer, principally for TV and radio. You've also written five books, the latest of which is Water Gypsies, a history of the life on Britain's rivers and canals. What inspired that? Well, um, I basically the book came from uh, my childhood, really. As you rightly say, I've had my main sort of career for, for many years, many, many decades, <laughs> has been as, as a scriptwriter for TV and radio, mainly comedy, impression shows, sketch shows, and uh, such like. And I, it was based, I was touring in a stage show before the pandemic struck. Um, I do a lot of shows, doing impression shows. I was touring in a John LeMessurier tribute show, the Sergeant Wilson character from wow. Dad's Army. And I was also doing a Last of the Summer Wine show. Um, and I was, I was six shows into that. I was touring the country, playing all the uh, theatres. Were you on your own? Yes, it's a one-man show. Yes, one-man impression shows. I was yeah, doing. yeah. So I, when the pandemic struck, and I was six shows in to the Last of the Summer Wine show, and when, of course, all theatre was cancelled. Mm. So I had literally been commissioned just before the lockdown to um, to write a book. And the inspiration for the book, um, it came from well, the publishers got in touch with me and I um I pitched them a couple of ideas and uh, the inspiration for the book came from my um childhood on uh, the houseboats in Cheney Walk in Chelsea in London mm. and I was uh, so I was I was born there and for those who don't know it's it's a it's it's, a, it's the Chelsea Yacht Club I think it's called now or the Chelsea Marina um then we just called it um Cheney Walk on uh, Chelsea Reach it's a series of it's a little lovely little community of uh, houseboats, a mixture of barges and uh, converted uh, D-Day landing craft, <laughs> which most of the boats are actually. What happened was the um, the boatyard in Chelsea, the en- the enterprising owner of the boatyard in Chelsea, um, just after the war, bought up a, a, a job lot of these D-Day landing craft, um, huge, you know, steel hulks and converted them into houseboats so i was born uh in the sort of uh, 60s there 
and on one of the boats called Moby Dick. <laughs> and I went during the, the first sort of couple of weeks of lockdown, I began, you know, musing on my childhood. And I thought that, um, as that, as a springboard for a book, my childhood on a houseboat was, uh, would be quite an original, um, sort of bit of leverage for a book. And I, I began investigating and researching the history of these houseboat communities that, that of course go way back to boatyards. I mean, the Chelsea, um, Chelsea Reach used to be a, a boatyard, you know, centuries before um, Walter Greaves boatyard. And right. so I began realizing that these that the houseboat communities across Britain now had this rich and wonderful history. And where did they come from? And, and I thought, um, I, I investigated sort of similar books on canal history and uh, river history. And I realized that there hadn't actually been a complete social history of the people who lived afloat from the earliest times. I mean, there are plenty of wonderful, wonderful books about the canals, you know, Rolt's marvellous books, Narrow Boot, etc., and um, many books on how to live on a, on a canal boat or a, or, a, or a houseboat, technical books, and, of course, histories of the canal age in terms of their economic impact. Mm. But there hadn't been a social history about the people who lived on not only the canals, but... In my book, Water Gypsies also goes way back into the history of um, river trade as well, going yes. right back to medieval times and even Roman times because there were sort of liverboards in terms of Roman trade and the Romans started building the first couple of canals, the Fosdyke, etc. So really, um, it, it was inspired by my childhood, but the book isn't a memoir, although there is a, a, a chapter and extensive references to my to my upbringing on a houseboat because it was a, it, it was a very just sort of distinct childhood really and um that kind of inspired me to you know look at the kind of people who who live on boats and it, it was a wonderful community in Chelsea when I was I mean, of course it was the 60s as I said and um you know we were rubbing shoulders with people like um Penelope Fitzgerald the wonderful novelist she lived three boats down Wow. And she wrote this wonderful book your listeners may know called Offshore, Offshore which yes. is a superb novel about houseboat living. Mm. And it, it's quite a melancholy book. It's quite realistic. It's not it a romantic portrayal, is it? No, no. It, it's quite stark and and uh, realistic about the hardships that people faced in the, in the, in the 60s and earlier. Um, and what a tough kind of childhood it was. But of course, you know, I rubbed shoulders with people like, you know, the Rolling Stones were living a few doors down. They were on land, of course. They were, they were in a house. Yes. But, um, and I used to, I was, I was introduced to Augustus John, who lived on Cheney Walk, and, uh, and Somerset Moore. Did Kit Gayford live there? Um, who, sorry? Kit Gayford. She was the trainer for the female boat volunteers of the Second World I, yes. And after she left the cut, I know she lived... In the houseboat at Chelsea, there is a, yes, I, there is a chapter in my book on um, uh, the, the the Thames during the, the World War Two, and it's fascinating history. The, the River Defence, the, the River Defence Force, which was sort of the equivalent of Dad's Army in a way. It was um, it was uh, it was headed up by A. P. Herbert, the the, uh, the wonderful writer and humorist and barrister and MP, who also lived on a house. Right. He was a famous houseboat dweller. His boat was more down in Hammersmith, but um, he used to he used to um, sail his boat up to the House of Commons when he was an MP. 
and disembark wow. right into the commons. But yes, he headed up the River Defence League. And the person you're referring to, yes, that does ring a bell. There was there was quite a few um, uh, naval attachments. Uh, they 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 lived on Cheney Walk in in the houseboats in on the Thames during the war, and nurses as well. Lots of nurses. But when I lived there, it was a it was quite an artistic bohemian community. You know, the Chelsea Embankment became a kind of a butt of people's jokes, actually, in the uh, in the sixties. It was, uh, and, and in the fifties well, as well. That's one of the things that surprised me in your book. You mentioned this sketch on <laughs> Hancock's Half Hour, yeah. where they sort of lampooned bo- bohemian uh, houseboat folk. Yeah. I didn't realise that houseboat dwellers were sufficiently in the public consciousness for them to be. Uh, the subject of comedy sketch. And the fact that it was in a big radio comedy show and mentioned um, proves that it, it, it was as um, sort of in the public eye because people who lived on boats in the 50s were invariably, according to the sort of perception, you know, beatniks or bohemians. There was that wonderful yeah. film, um, The Horse's Mouth, starring Alec Guinness, uh, he, where he plays a bohemian artist, a very eccentric artist, and he lives on the boats in Cheney Walk. Um, right. And Hancock's Half Hour, which you mentioned, there is an episode called The Poetry Society, which is an episode that completely lampoons the beatnik life. And Tony Hancock has joined this society, <laughs> the East Gene Cultural Progressive Society. And um, he says, um, a more intellectual lot like us, you won't find outside the Chelsea Embankment. And... Um, <laughs> Sid James asks him, well, you know, Tony Hancock says, well, they, they haven't got houses. And Sid says, haven't got houses? Where do they live then? And Hancock yeah. replies, well, six of them live in a basement under the pet shop. Uh, ten of them live on a boat on the canal. Five live on the uh, Chelsea embankment. And the other 15 live with them. So um, it was, they were the butt of jokes um, in the 50s. And... It's unsurprising, really, because it, they were kind of proto-hippies in a way. Um, yeah. They hadn't quite dropped out of society, houseboat dwellers. It, it's an interesting thing because the social the social sort of um, image of houseboat dwellers does change. And I, I traced this change in, in my book um, from people immediately after the war were really families who'd been made homeless through the, through the, um, the Blitz, and a lot of them settled in Benfleet, lovely houseboat community there. Oh, right. So they, it was it was only in the sort of mid to late fifties and sixties that the sort of beatnik and proto hippie image started. Emerging. I think it, in in your book you said that they were somehow regarded as uh, boat dwellers were somehow regarded as countercultural. Well, yes, because in a sense, it, it this is the sort of and my whole book is a love letter to these people really throughout history because people who did live aboard and even river traders in medieval times lived um, several weeks aboard, aboard because afloat because uh, the, the journeys were so long but the countercultural thing is um, they were a society within a society i mean it's if somebody were to ask you does britain have a nomadic community are there nomads in britain most people would say no mm. but of course we have the traveling community and caravans etc but we have had a nomadic community in Britain for centuries that people have lived afloat, especially during the golden age of canals. There are upwards mm. of towards 100,000 canal dwellers 
And um, although they started off living in cottages on land um, in the trading centers and, and traveling on boats, you know, for a week or two weeks, many of them from the mid 19th century onwards began living permanently aboard. So, so yes, and um, my, the title of my book, Water Gypsies, I make clear is not um, in any way, it doesn't in any way reflect an ethnic community because mm. it, they weren't all Romanis. I mean, that's, that's an historical fact. Some of them were who went um, mm. to, live, to work on the canals, but most were people who lived on the land, worked on the land and didn't want to work for a farmer anymore or didn't want to work in the factories in the Victorian age. So they took to took to the water, and it's that kind of character who I, I realised there was something in common. Although there were there's a rich pattern of different people who who live afloat, um, I think they all have something in common, and that's a desire to for independence and a desire for to be slightly outside of society. So that's where the countercultural thing comes in, I think, which feeds into the fifties and sixties. When people did began to drop out, and and even today, you know, people today who want to live afloat, they are there. There is a difference about them. There's a, it's a when living afloat becomes a choice. It's a it's a desire to be closer to nature, outside the uh, the rat race. I know these are all sort of cliches, but they are applicable. It's very true, though. Yes, yes. So uh, what you're essentially saying is that living afloat has always been countercultural. In a way, yes. Um, the yes, I mean, I mean, obviously there are. I mean, river. What what fascinated me in researching the book is how how they were considered outsiders, even in the great age of river trade, when London began building its docks, and of course the river traders would travel for weeks along the major arteries of Britain, you know, carrying goods, timber, malt. Malt was a huge industry. But it was a tough life. I mean, we, we think of our rivers as quite idyllic now. But this, these were, you know, this was in the age before the riverside towns. Um, mm. he, there was Henley, all the riverside towns like Henley, Marlow. They, they were all products of uh, the boom in, in river trade. So when the first river trade... What particular period are we... We're talking the medieval, in medieval times now. Yeah. And it was, of course, there, the, there were no pound locks on the rivers... It was all flash locks, waterfalls. So these were wild rivers, really. These people were traveling. Yes. And there was what fascinated me was reading about uh, the, discovering documents and letters from from barges and traders uh, from uh, from the 12th century to the 18th century, really, where there were gangs of pirates that used to regularly attack boats at night, and um, gangs would form. At sort of certain settlements along the Thames, and there was lots of it was a tough life. You know, you had to guard yourself against attackers and murderers. There's one wonderful letter from the 18th century. There was a, there was a guy called um, I think it was called Walter Duval, and there's a letter from the Barges of Reading, and it's still in existence. And uh, it says, um, uh, if you try to, I, I'm paraphrasing, but it says if you try to carry your load into Newbury. We will certainly shoot you. We tried to shoot you last time, but we're two minutes too late. And this is, a, you know, death threats. These were this was a common yeah. thing. So it was a tough life. These guys were um, and families were were um, outside the you know the mainstream of of society. Really, 
It was almost yeah. like a Wild West type thing. And this, of course, became more regulated. The life became more regulated when the, the huge canal um, trading started. But mm. um, it was still tough. But um, the other major thing I discovered in researching the book is actually how relatively well-off uh, canal uh, boat people were um, in relation to their counterparts on land who worked in factories and on farms. Yeah. They received quite a good whack for their goods. And um, this is during the age of canal mania where. Yes, when canals first kind of um, boomed. I, I th- between 1780 and 1850, I would say, is the golden age of prosperity for the canal. But just, just to the cusp of uh, when railways started coming in as competition and then later road, road haulage, of course. But they were earning a good whack. And they were all independent, especially if they owned their own boat. And um, I, I went through lots of um, documents from the um, the big uh, hauliers, the the money they paid these people, and it was it was often well above the uh, the, the, the the sort of wages of factory workers, which which was interesting. So all, this book is full of um, full of sort of facts and um, things like that. <laughs> You describe a golden age for canal boaters when they were to some extent their own masters. They had escaped some of the really unpleasant employment in factories and mills, mm. and they were comparatively well paid. It was interesting to note in your book that the Victorians had a tendency to romanticise the boaters. Mm. Was this romanticisation justified? Well, that's a very interesting thing which I tackle in the book. At um, there are two perceptions of um, waterways living, uh, which grew up in the nineteenth century. As you rightly say, um, the Victorians were a very sentimental culture, and they did tend to sentimentalise um, certain ways of living. It's a bit like the way the Elizabethans sentimentalised pastoral living. Um, I mean, I you know when I was studying English, I used to read all these poems from the Elizabethan era, sort of um, depicting how wonderful the shepherd's life was. You know, <laughs> yeah. all the shepherds, the free shepherd wandering over the hills with his flock, and that yeah. was a device from poets. And of course, it was completely romanticised. I mean, the life of a shepherd in in the in the fifteen eighties was probably really rough. <laughs> Um, yeah. And it was the same with the waterways people. The Victorians did romanticise. And this romanticising comes from upper middle class artists and writers who <laughs> predominantly lived in London, who would go for a week's um, jaunt on the Thames and um, or the canals. And they would, um, they would consider it a wonderful, idyllic life. I'd go back and write these... Uh, lovely books on um, how wonderful it was. Um, Dickens was more realistic, as you might expect, because he was a social commentator. He travelled on the Grand Union, and also in America, when he went to America, he travelled on the yeah. canals in America. And his perception, he, he wrote articles for the, his magazine, Household Words, in the um, 1850s. And his depiction was more realistic. I mean, he knew it was tough. He, um, yeah. he also was very very bored by the by his journeys that he made yes um, he did point out didn't he i think he did i mean again i'm paraphrasing now but he did kind of suggest that boating being an inland boater is 
quite boring existence. Well, know? yes, the, the he he was beset by the dreariness of it. These yeah. but I think, in a way, I think that was coloured by the fact that he wasn't working the boat; he was just a traveller. If you're working mm. the boat, I think you're you know you're more. <laughs> it's a more um, involved journey. But um, but there were the, the, the biggest romanticizers were the artists. I think um, George Dunlop Leslie was a was a Victorian painter who had a houseboat on the Thames. And um, he wrote a marvellous book on the, on the Thames, which uh, paints a wonderful picture of, of, of river life. But um, the big counter to that came in 1875 when um, a social uh, reformer called George Smith wrote what is mm. probably the greatest, I mean, you probably know, but, uh, the great annualist that's probably know, the, the great, one of the great social documents about canal life, I think it's called Our, our Canal Population. That's right, yeah. And he came, he, he, his view was obviously completely counter to the romanticizers yeah. in, um, in that it was, he probably went too far the other way. And in my book, I actually try to strike a balance because um, he was full of relig- religious reforming zeal and he decried the horrible life that these canal families were living were leading and he wanted them all to have um, education and um, I mean he it's it's almost horrible the way he describes them he was described you know he describes them as almost being subhuman or animal wow he said they don't have any spirit they've <laughs> their souls <laughs> have shrunk and they've become animalistic and there's a right. there's a there's a wonderful paragraph in one of his in his book our canal population in which he he witnesses Canal women washing their laundry in the in the canal, and they're topless. they're all topless exactly. Yes, and, yes, I remember um, reading that in your book. Yes, this is very puritanical, and uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if that goes on today, but uh, in our more enlightened times, <laughs> but um, he, of course, you know, betrays this as as somehow savage, which um, mm. so it, it, it's. It's a it's a balance you have to strike, and that's the balance I try to strike in the book, uh, where it's neither romantic nor savage. It's 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 work, and it's um, the people involved love their independence. They hated George Smith. I mean, they used to chase Did him. They? they chased him away when he tried to interview. Did they? Oh, wow. oh yes. I mean, the, the yeah. children were instructed not to talk to him. They they thought he was just sticking his nose in their life, and um, so they had this stubbornness about them, and. I th- I'm not sure if I use this phrase in the book, but um, I've used it since in talking to people. Um, th- we all know the phrase Britain is a nation of shopkeepers. Well, I think yeah. that independence of enterprise, it really feeds into life on the waterways, the people who lived on the waterways. Um, they were stubborn. They looked at the, as themselves as separate. They took no... Um, they brooked no uh, sort of interference in their lives. So I and and the, the, these canals were, were were feeding Britain. You know, they were carrying the vital cargoes across before the railways, of course. Um, so their importance is un, cannot be overemphasized. I don't think, in, in, and and it, it's that characteristic of independence and stubbornness that is a streak in British human nature. I know it's quite Mm. unfashionable to talk about human nature and national traits, but there's undoubtedly a national trait that wants to, uh, doesn't want a boss, that wants to uh, own their own 
means of production, if you like, i.e. the boat, mm. and just take to the water. And, uh, and that same spirit kind of ca- has carried on for centuries. And I think yeah, in your, in your book you suggested that it might be a, something to do with the he- Britain's heritage as a maritime nation. Absolutely, yes. I think the skill of the British um, people was was praised even by the Romans going way back. They said, um, you know, they they wrote about uh, Britain being known for its uh, their boating skills. And I think the river trade, when the canals started, um, the main sources of people to work on the canals initially did come from river traders because, of course, they had the they had the skill. It only later on river traders began to look down on canal people um as not being as skilled as them but initially it was river traders who uh, could steer their boats you know they, they, there was a phrase that um the the great western barges which they which they uh, steered through you know through the arteries of britain could go wherever a duck goes these were wonderful oh. sort of flat bottom great western barges yeah. which go way back to um um the bronze age designs really clinker built bronze age inland vessels and um so yes the the maritime skills i it, it's it's to do with our, our geography really yeah not a national trait <laughs> i wouldn't say a national trait but it's uh these were these were uh, these were very skillful people Waterways World has been Britain's best-selling canals and rivers magazine since 1972. In each monthly issue, you'll find the latest waterway news, practical advice on boat buying and boat ownership, reviews of the latest craft and equipment, a pull-out cruising guide to help you plan your next trip, first-hand accounts of Waterways Live, and insights into the history and heritage of our canals and rivers. For subscription offers, visit waterwaysworld.com, where you'll also find a searchable magazine archive, our interactive Ask an Expert Advice section, and our boat search feature, the most comprehensive listing of canal boats for sale you'll find online. That's waterwaysworld.com. Go back to any point in waterways history. What, what, <laughs> where, where would you go? Oh gosh! Um, in my research for the book, I, I I fell in love with every era. Really, the, mm. I'd love to have witnessed the first Romans entering the Thames estuary. Of course, um, whether I'd like to have actually lived there or not, I don't know. But what's fascinating is, is there was, of course, no London. There was no London. Solely grew up because of the Romans. And, That's right, because uh, it was a, Did they they effectively create a ford there? Or they did. The only yeah, and the only reason London exists and became such a huge sort of hub of of the waterways because, of course, all the canals led to London mm. eventually um, is because of the two land spits, the sand gravel spits that um, exist, but still exist between Westminster and what is now Westminster and uh, the South Bank. Uh, that's where they could build a bridge. If that, if those two sand gravel spurs hadn't been there, the capital city of Britain would probably have been Maidenhead or something, um, <laughs> far, far or more upstream. 
So I'd like to have seen, I mean, there were no tribes living in the what, what is now London now at all. There were no settlements. The, the nearest settlement was Brentford, apparently. And it's no coincidence right. that Brentford grew up as a um, major uh, waterways hub. And um, the other era I would love to have visited was would be, I think, the 1890s, the golden age of uh, leisure boating because oh right well, that's an interesting yes i well really um th- i mean things like henry regatta had started in its sort of primitive phase in the 1820s but waterways uh living as 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 a leisure pursuit really took off towards the end of the 19th century and houseboat yeah. living i mean some of the richest people in britain would would live on houseboats there was fred carno the big entertainment impresario um, his houseboat uh, on, um, I think it's uh, it's in Hampton, um, which is still there. And um, of course, the 1890s was the decade of three men in a boat, probably yes. one of our finest and most famous waterways books. Fantastic, uh, fantastic humorous book. And the fact that um, Jerome K. Jerome writes about the threat from steam launches <laughs> of course, they went, they went up um, river on a, on a skiff, obviously. Yeah, indeed. And uh, you know, there's so much comedy about uh, you know the, the, the threat from the steam launches, these newfangled blighters, yeah. which they, um, I think, Harris has a quote in it was, uh, Harris said he would like to not only uh, sink their boats but uh, kill all their relatives and dance on their graves. Okay. I thought Harris was going slightly too far, but uh, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> so there's possibly. wonderful stuff in that. Um, but I guess the 1890s, that would have been where the river boating was, uh, r- river leisure boating. I imagine that canals weren't really considered recreational cruising grounds. No, that's true. It was mainly the rivers. But um, uh, yes, you're right. It's, it's only in the post-war era when um, Rolt's pioneering work in setting up the Inland Waterways Association uh, led to the restoration of the canals and the conversion, as you know, of canals from trade to leisure uh, yeah. leading to the boom that, that exists today but um but yes ca- when canals were primarily arteries for workers <laughs> bargees yes it, it wasn't um they, they, it, there was very little leisure although actually yeah i did find some um evidence of um floating hotels on the canals uh, as, as far back as about 1900 Oh right. Was, okay. Yes, there were some hotels and some kind of some canal restaurants, floating restaurants. So, hmm. but of course, it's mainly the sort of leisure. Uh, I mean, I mean, leisure on the river goes back to the um, the eighteenth century and, and earlier, really, where there were some wonderful floating restaurants in London, and of course, the pleasure gardens of London, particularly uh, Vauxhall Gardens and Cremorne Gardens. These were sort of like permanent almost fairgrounds with stalls and uh, uh, things like that. We, we don't really have them today. It's interesting. But the pleasure mm. garden began in the 18th century. And, of course, people would spend several weeks moored up to these pleasure gardens. And it's what's interesting is that houseboat communities grew up uh, near these pleasure gardens. So what I, what I loved doing in the book is tra- all the houseboat communities that exist today, I loved tracing back why that they are actually there. From from the canal 
boat communities today in Braunston and Brentford and, and all over all over Britain. Mm. They they're not there for a total coincidence. There's yeah. a rich heritage of why they're there, and it, and it goes back centuries. Brentford, is particularly, because Brentford was was the biggest um, sort of industrial hub for trade. Huge warehouses and factories around the junction, the junction to the Grand Union, and um, so these these places have a fantastic history. And uh, although the economic story uh, of canals has been told many times before, my book focuses on what it was like to live on yeah, these boats because yeah. I, I, I recreate. I recreated um, a week in the life of medieval traders and I kind of do a deep dive or attempt to <laughs> a deep dive into um, the daily life of a medieval river trader from Henley, from Oxfordshire to, to London. And also a week in the life of a canal dweller in the 19th century, what they ate, what they wore, uh, who they saw on the bank, Provides real social insights. Exactly, yes. I mean, the history I love, I mean, the history books I love, um, I mean, it's always been a passion of mine, history, because I, I studied it at um, university. But um, my, my, as you say, as you said earlier, my career has mainly been light entertainment, writing comedy shows for TV. But I've always had this kind of sideline of writing books. I read a history of comedy, history of visual comedy, which was published a few years back. So, but it's the daily life of people that really lights my fire really they're the, they're the history books i really love okay, uh, that yeah. brings to life the day in the life of uh, of these people and of course you bring the story up to date as well by looking at london's liverboard community now yes and and uh, all over britain really i i hope yeah. it's a national history hopefully oh of course yeah. yeah um but you did revisit your old houseboat at chelsea yes what was that like? Well, it was amazing, really. I had been back a couple of times before since we left. Um, we left, actually, the reason we left the houseboats was uh, that we were falling in the mud too much, if I remember right. Um, our family grew to three children, uh, so there were five of us living on this boat, Moby Dick. And, wow. of course, as you know, the Thames is tidal. And um, it, it's a quite a drop, actually. It's a high tide. It's a... I think it's about 27 feet at that point where the, where the houseboats are. And so you rest on this, this grey Thames slippery mud for half a day. And, of course, when you're a kid, that's absolute bliss. You jump in the mud. And we used to spend you know, hours rolling around in the mud, hosed down by the hose from the standpipe. And, but it got a bit too much for my parents, really. I mean, because as a child, when you, if you're growing, on a, growing up on a houseboat as a child – you're having all the fun and doing none of the work, basically. It got a little tough. Yeah. The boat at one point um, lo- uh, slipped its moorings and we woke up to find ourselves floating downstream. Um, <laughs> did it have an engine? It did have an engine, but my, uh, it hadn't been working for, for years. So my <laughs> we were my father sort of uh, describes it described it later as um, he sort of uh, woke up, you know, strolled up on deck, yawned, stretched, and looked out, and he, 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 we were practically in Gravesend. Um, <laughs> but we were towed back by, by a tug, so that was great. Um, great so great. it got a little bit tough for my parents, yeah. so we moved inland. And um, 
So yeah, it's your question. I revisited the boat, and what was wonderful is that there was. Um, I interviewed a few people who, well, one of them had been there since the sixties. Um, lovely old lady called Stephanie Harwood, who who is still there from the sixties and is in her eighties now. And of course, the the sort of the occupants have changed. Um, like everything in London, prices have gone up, and that includes barges on the canals and also houseboats. But um, there was still a feeling of it being a little bohemian community, and um, in fact, they are they are struggling at the moment. Uh, Chelsea Reach boats—they're they're struggling at the moment to preserve what they've got because. Um, there's the, the current owner. I, I I won't go into it deeply because it's still going through the courts. But it's um, there's a threat of um, eviction um, and rise uh, the rising of mooring fees, etc. Which, as you probably know, is a is a problem national nationally, mm. where uh, the new owner may want to sort of evict the old houseboats, which are still there, the D-Day landing crafts and the Dutch barges and bring in super yachts because of course Chelsea's a huge magnet for oligarchs and <laughs> people like that. Yeah. So the changes that is happening in London in terms of demography are impacting on the houseboat communities. And um, it's, it's a little bit of a struggle at the moment to preserve the character of those communities, but it's still a lovely, um, village nestling on it's like a floating village uh, nestling on the on the uh, sort of the edge of chelsea but it's under threat as everything as ever as waterways living is really yes i was wondering if you've ever written anything else about the inland waterways well that's interesting I, I i have i wrote an article about my visit back to the houseboats oh, wow. for the independent but um as far as a, a books of concern, no, I've just been a voracious reader of waterways literature because it's always cast a spell over me, and I've been on a few canal holidays, etc. I've never gone back to living on the water. That's something that might happen. Um, really? Well, just from read, just from writing the book, it sort of reawakened all this this love in me, and a lot of my friends, as a result of reading the book, have said, have said that they're going to move onto onto a onto a canal boat. Um, wow! So, um, I. Yes, I mean, I am tempted. I may, maybe in my retirement, I shall take to the water again. It's very tempting. Yeah. But as you know, I think um, my book does come right up to the present. And I uh, I took a look at the current um, state of liverboards and who they are. And they are still predominantly people who want to get out of the rat race, mm. do something different. And, and, and that bohemian kind of lifestyle that that still exists oh yes to some extent yeah. oh yes indeed i mean london of course has become expensive but there are still pockets of houseboating on the canals and the rivers where you can still you know where life hasn't changed for centuries so mm. it's still out there i mean i know there's lots of talk and, and articles written um in in your magazine and others that about the canals being a victim of their own success and overpopulation but i think just from my journeys there are still pockets of there is still a, a, a whiff of the wilderness about it and then sure. you know st whole stretches of the canals where you rarely see other people and uh, so it's still a beautiful lifestyle choice 
Yeah. You live in Wales now, do you, Julie? I do, yes. Do you have a local waterway there? Well, not... Um, the canals in Wales are quite, as you know... There's not that many, are Not there? many. A bit, <laughs> there's a paucity of canals in Wales. But, um, so, no, I've... I've well, there's the lovely Llangollen Canal, but um, I... Um, I mean, I still love the waterways. There's fantastic rivers in, in Wales, obviously, and uh, and the coastline. I live near the Gower the Gower coast. Um, I moved out here when my children left home and I, I found myself in England thinking, well, I can live anywhere now. My children have fled the nest. So yes, I live in Wales, but I, I still visit London a lot. And, um, and as I say, I have a hankering to possibly move back to the, uh, to the waterways. Well, if you do, let's just know because I'm sure sure that'll make a fascinating feature. Yes, yeah. The magazine Return yes. of the Native. Well, I hope it comes up, Julian. Thank you so much for giving your time to me today. Pleasure. It's been it's been, it's been great talking to yeah, you. Lovely yeah, lovely chatting. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Fascinating. And um, best of luck with the the book. Thank I you very much. Continues to to do well. Thank you. It's um, it's doing surprisingly well, actually. And I, I'm I say surprisingly well. I mean I'm. <laughs> being modest um yes it's published by the history press and it's it's out now it's been out a few weeks and I, i'm very pleased with how well it's gone down because i think it might be because it's um it's tapping into um a slight bit of escapism where it, I, I do emphasize it's not a romantic eulogy to boat moving i've tried to be realistic because it's a social history but it's still um it's a love letter really it's a love letter to the people who live float and I wanted it to appeal to anybody who either lives aboard now or has a hankering for it and it's um, so it's a sort of a, a love letter without being too gushing five years, the ABC Leisure Group has been at the forefront of the waterways leisure industry. With 15 strategically placed marinas around the UK, it has hundreds of moorings with modern facilities and a range of benefits. ABC also runs a successful and competitive boat brokerage business. See abcboatsales.com, as well as over 200 luxury hire boats and day boats. Visit abcboathire.com. Furthermore, it offers a range of land-based holiday accommodation, including waterside holiday cottages and caravan parks. Visit abcholidaycottages.com.